Well, good morning, everyone. I'm here this morning, a very early uh, Tuesday morning with Jared Varengo of Applebrook Golf Club in Malvern, Pennsylvania. Want to? Uh, I, I like to spring this on everybody and not give them a chance to prepare for it. But uh, I want to uh, congratulate you on being selected as our most recent recipient of the All-Stars of Turf Award, sponsored by Foley and Air2G2. Uh, Jared, you're a former finalist for our uh, older uh, Superintendent of the Year program, which was something we did on an annual basis. And this is... Uh, something we like to do on a little bit more frequent um, interval uh, to give uh, uh, recognition to a uh, uh, few more people than we're able to doing something just once a year. So uh, congratulations for that. And Thank you. you're welcome. And uh, so we'll jump right in. Um, like a lot of people, you got into this business I don't want to say by mistake, but it was something you were doing something else and you had worked previously on a golf course and sort of fell back into that because you could never um, get that uh, get working on the golf course out of your blood. So tell us a little bit about uh, your career in psychology. You were working with people with mental health issues, but you kept going back to the golf course uh, and, and how did you decide on a career in the mental health services? And then what was it about the golf business that brought you back? Yeah. So, um, I mean, I started working on golf courses in high school, so, or probably around, you know, I was probably about 17 years old and, and needed a summer job. And it was just kind of funny. I had a buddy of mine that worked at a corner store that was across the street from a public golf course in Connecticut and it was, you know, it's the common golf course that everybody plays, you know, that probably does the 25 or 30,000 rounds a year. And um, the superintendent that ran that course, Barry Ains, actually, who's, who's still in the business, um, he he stopped in there in the morning to get his newspaper and coffee. And he must have, my buddy who was, you know, in high school, he said, hey, you're looking for, you know, we're looking for some people at the golf course, if you know anybody. And so he mentioned it to me at the time I had this, like this calling job and I had done, you know, he's done some type of work and uh, you know, he mentioned it to me. I said, sure. It sounds, sounds good to me. Now I had no background in golf. My dad didn't play golf. I literally had zero experience in golf. I, I, at that point, I don't know if I'd ever, no, I've, I've probably never been on a golf course. So instantly, you know, I, I said, sure, we'll go do it. You know, and I think it was like probably five and a half bucks an hour or something then. And uh, you know, it was uh, you know, instantly I was sort of, you know, mesmerized or, you know, interested just how beautiful the landscape was. And then of course the, uh, you know, just the equipment that was used, the fact that we were outdoors, you know, I would say that I pretty much, as far as any job at that point, I fell in love with it and, uh, you know, I got to work with my buddy and it was very, it was much more casual. It was a good way to get into it because it was fun. You know, then you get to a point farther along, I always say, is it, it starts to not, that, that was actually fun. So, you know, my, my latter part of, I wasn't a great student, like in high school, I did, you know, all right, but I basically was kind of a troublemaker, did the bare minimum. You know, I did, I, I did some sports and whatnot, but, you know, I wasn't serious about my studies or anything like that. And, uh, and I think a lot of the times I just wasn't interested. I, you know, now I'd probably be attention deficit or something, but uh, I was rambunctious. 
But needless to say, I, uh, which was why I think, you know, some of us gravitated, the guys I've worked with that have done well seemed to, you know, that's where they, they kind of favor the outdoor work, um, you know, and the fact that it's not monotonous. So, yeah, I, you know, I applied for some schools at the time, you know, I didn't even really consider it as a career. I was fortunate because Barry was a certified superintendent. He was a younger guy and uh, he had a lot of passion for, for that. You know, he had worked in sort of the med area, but took this as his first job. And um, yeah, he was very passionate. He was, a, he was a good mentor as far as, um, you know, he took, he would, I worked for someone like that at an early point that understood how important I had no idea of the, the high standards of a golf course. Um, you know, even just washing a machine. So I learned a lot from him and I think I like that type of discipline. So I went off to college. Um, at the same time, I was started dating my now wife, who's been my wife for a long time. And, uh, we, we both ended up going off. I decided to go to Northeastern university in Boston. At that point, I wasn't sure with a career, but I'd taken some psychology in high school. I liked it. And, um, so that's, I pretty much settled on that as a, as a major because I enjoyed the work or enjoyed the education rather, but at the same time, kept working on the golf course uh, throughout the summers and Northeastern was on sort of quarters, you know, they, they were, did a co-op program. And so my, it worked out well from a golf course standpoint, because I would get out later June, but I'd be able to work later. Uh, so when all the other college kids, a few other college kids we had there went back, I was able to keep working. Um, so I got to see some, you know, well, I got more responsibility, number one, because I was really, you know, he was short staffed. So, um, you know, I got to do some things that maybe somebody at that level wouldn't have always had a chance to do. Long story short, you know, actually, actually towards my junior year at Northeastern, I started to think about going into turf management. And like I said, in high school, it hadn't really been, um, you know, a thought. And, uh, so at that point, you know, I, I looked into it and I said, you know what, I'm so far along. I ended up not going into it. Maybe my parents kind of talked me out of it. I don't know. I'm not sure. But at the time, I ended up graduating and then went to work in in uh, in in the mental health field, essentially as an outreach counselor in Connecticut. And um, yeah, it was a uh, you know I was fortunate because believe it or not, well not believe it or not, but in that industry males were were somewhat far and few between, and there was a need because of certain clients to have that. And uh, this was kind of a point not to get into that, but it was it was an interesting field. It was basically, they were deregulating state hospitals were closing. It was at the tail end of that. And I was an outreach counselor. And basically that was my responsibility to take um, clients out of these institutions and basically essentially de-institutionalize them, um, teach them banking, all these things. And I, you know, I liked it. There was actually a lot of variety to it. The tough part was the human part of it. Um, and then I think, you know, the nature of people in this business is we like to step back at the end of the day, we do a project and kind of look back and see the work that we accomplished. And this was tough because the human factor was tough to deal with at times. Um, just, you know, I always say just human nature, you know, sort of drug addiction, these things, kind of the the, uh, the self-destructive type behavior was frustrating because no matter what you did, it was hard to get to, to, to address that, you know, and we're guys in this industry, we tend to be kind of control freaks. We can't control the weather, but we can control a lot, or sometimes we think we can. And that was a, that was sort of a frustrating part and it didn't pay very well. There's a lot of stress. You know, I used to say to my, and you can stop me if I'm too long-winded here, but, um, Christine, you know, used to, who was in business at the time and had a good job. She, um, you know, it was, it was tough because at the end of the day, she could turn off her, her computer, go home on a Friday. But when you're dealing with people, it's not the same, you know? So I always go back and say, you know, this industry, at least at the end of the day, it's still just grass. Um, so, and yeah, so, um, I think I got a couple years into that. I was at the point where, you know, I was either going to go back for a master's degree or PhD. 
and still was working on a golf course. The one advantage of this job is it didn't pay a whole lot, but you had a ton of comp. They would, they would, they would give you anything you did extra, which I would take extra shifts and things you would do. You would get comp time. So I actually had a lot of time off um, that I wasn't really going on vacation that I would go and work on the golf course, um, you know, cause I, I enjoyed it. At this point I was still at Candlewood decided to go back to school, went to UMass um, realized that, you know, I was going to have to do something different from a work standpoint, um, you know, to expand my horizons and my career, my, my boss agreed and then ended up uh, doing my internship at Wingfoot golf club in New York. And um, you know, from there did a PGA championship worked there for four summers. I was fortunate to work for, uh, well, uh, uh, Bob Alonzi, number one, who was another great mentor. And then I got, I had the opportunity to work for Paul Latshaw uh, when Bob had left for about a year, nine months to a year. So, and then ended up, uh, yeah. I, I think my first reaction to all that is I find it kind of comical that you would say you became a golf course superintendent because your previous profession was too stressful. Um and I, I think some some would say that, uh, you, you know, you maybe jump from the frying pan to the fire and your days of dealing with people within the golf business, dealing with people with mental health issues, probably probably are, are still carry over to that. Um, now, so you are one of the first people I know in this business at Applebrook who took the dual role of superintendent and general manager your title now i believe is uh, director of grounds and director of club operations but there was a stretch there for about a decade or so where your your second title was gm um like i said you're you're one of the first people i know who decided to go down that route that's become a little bit more common now uh why did you think that 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 was a good career choice. What made you want to go down that path of being the general manager as well? And, um, and, and what did you have to do to prepare yourself for that, for that position? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, the one, the way I've always approached my career, I guess, is to just kind of, you know, and I've said this to my kids is just, you know, try to keep as much, uh, provide yourself as much opportunity, right? So don't limit yourself and have options. Um, so from an educational standpoint, I think prior to that, I started working on getting my MSM, um, um, my master's of science and management online through University of Maryland. That was just to say, you know, at the time, I didn't know if I'd get to this is, you know, probably going back 15 years ago. Um, was to, you know, try to prepare myself if I wanted to do some consulting, if I want you know, work at a bigger organization. Um, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but I wanted to make sure I was prepared. Um, the GM really wasn't, you know, on the radar, um, but we're a smaller club and how that happened is essentially early on uh, when the club was founded, uh, Hank Belber, our president, um, we actually, Jeff Kitty, who's a, who's a golf pro, been a long time pro now at, at Aronimic Golf Club, was our first pro. We were both hired at the same time in about 2000 at Applebrook. And um, he was the GM for up until probably, um, well, probably 2006 or so, I guess. And um, he, um, 
you know, he was, our, our club's small enough that it operated pretty well. We're really, you know, the board was very active. He was a liaison. And, I, and I've said this before and other things, and people have asked me, hey, what do you think? And I said, really, it's situation, but it depends on the club, you know, what they want, what they want out of you. Because the one thing I, and I've said this before too, is that, you know, for me, like this, the, the reason I got into this, my passion is growing grass. I like getting my hands dirty. Um, I like being involved. I like the environment. I like the, the people I work with at the, at the maintenance facility, you know, or at our, at our place. I like, I like that interaction. Um, I like being on the golf course. You know, I don't want to, the reason I didn't want to be, you know, I don't, I don't want to be in an office from early on. And so, you know, while I like management, I like the challenge of management. I still wanted to be able to, well, the way I, I always said to my, my boss was, look, what I said, I'll do this. Cause so my president came and asked me after Jeff left, we didn't have anybody for about a year. And the president of the club came to me and said, Hey, would you be interested? And I said, I would. And, and to answer your question is for me, it's just, uh, challenging, growing, and then just keeping it interesting. You know, it's, a, you know, you're at a place for 20 years, you know, you, you just can't do the same thing every day and stay excited about it. Right. So this was a total, you know, this was a challenge for me. And of course I knew the club having been there. I knew Jeff. And again, you know, the scale of the operation is such that it worked fine, but I did say to, to, um, Hank Belber at the time, I said, look, Hank, you have to understand, I want to, I'm going to be 80% golf course superintendent and 20% GM um, or whatever that might be. But ultimately the focus always needs. And, and I said to Hank, I said, look, our number one asset is the golf course. And in our case, you know, we're not a country club. We're purely a golf club. We don't have tennis, pickleball, you know, swimming pool, it's golf and, and fine dining. And so with that said, you know, I said, look, I have to, um, I have to be focused on the golf course or I'm not being a very good GM. And he understood that and he was good with it. And, you know, the reality is, is at times, and I said this to guys is that, you know, you sometimes you're hundred percent GM a lot of times. Um, and you, you know, if there's a crisis or something going on or you're replacing someone with the club, you're hundred percent GM. Um, but for the most part, my focus, I always went to the office at, at our maintenance facility. I never really, even though I had an office at the clubhouse, I didn't spend a lot of time there. So for me, it worked and I learned a lot, you know, and I think for one thing, if everybody does that, you know, I've always had good relationships with the people I work with within the club, meaning the other department heads. And I think, you know, the position I was in, I was really able to understand what challenges they have. You know, there's never been, you know, a lot of times you get this friction between departments and this happens right in all businesses um, between departments. And it's because they just don't understand what the other department, you have to be sort of empathetic in the way you manage. And, um, you know, that was one thing that really helped uh, for me is being in that position for a decade, like you said, it was about 10 years. Um, and then recently, essentially, I stepped down, we brought in a, a, a different GM and um, a lot of that was to take care of some, you know, concerns with dining and things like that. The other part is I have, um, I think right now we have about $7 million in projects going on. So that, you know, it was important for me to be able to focus on that. Um, so uh, hopefully I answered your question, but. Yeah. So then explain then to me the difference between the title of director of club operations and general manager. So we just have a better understanding of what your current role is. Yeah. So essentially um, I've handed over a lot of the day-to-day -day clubhouse stuff and certainly all the dining stuff too. The, the person that took over um, was, was actually worked for me as a clubhouse manager or worked under me, if you will, when I was GM, he was a clubhouse manager for a bunch of years. It was really good. And um, it was an opportunity for him to come over and he, and he was a GM. He's a certified club manager at a local club. And so he wasn't, uh, he was going to come over and want the GM title, which was fine. Um, but essentially I'm still involved with some insurance stuff. 
I'm involved. You know, there's a lot of interaction between the GM and I, as far as clubhouse number one, cause I did it for 10 years. Um, so yeah, I just, you know, there's a little parts of my job that I've sort of, uh, from a personnel staffing, I'm not involved with, but then other parts of, you know, club operations, golf operations, things like that. I'm still involved with. So without going into detail, but. Now for so long, you've taken on the, and I know you just explained a lot of what your, your focus has been uh, in the, during this time you've served in a dual capacity, but you, you know, you're taking on the job that requires you know, 40 hours a week and then some of two people. How do you make that work with family time? Um, just in, in, you know, falling back on your, on your, your, your own training, um, you know, for your own mental health as well, you know, because I mean, obviously I'm, I'm sure you're not working 80 hours a week, but you're also not working 40. Yeah. Well, somewhere in between that, not that I haven't worked my 80, but more, more likely 80 than 40, but, uh, it, it's a lot. I mean, it's also the way I, I've always done it, you know? So, um, I was putting in those kind of hours on the golf course. And as I said, it's almost like a, uh, it was a more of a reallocation of my time, you know, and just shifting it at times and passing and delegating more, um, the importance. That's another thing, you know, the importance of having a good support staff when you are GM, because there was times where you have to be ready to step And That's the thing when I've talked to other guys, you have to be ready that there's times where, again, like I said, that hundred percent focus, you have to be able to just step away. And that's hard for some guys, um, and it was hard for me too, because you have to just turn your back and let, you know, give it to your, you know, any one of you, the guys um, that work alongside you and say, take care of this because I'm going to be doing this, you know, dealing with clubhouse stuff for a day or two days or whatever it is. Right. Um, so. And now you, you mentioned how you, you came up working uh, after you, you graduated from UMass and while you were attending UMass, uh, you're fortunate enough to work for the likes of uh, 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 names like Alonzi and Latshaw. What did you learn from uh, uh, men like that, and how has that helped form your uh, uh, philosophy as a as a superintendent and a greenkeeper going forward? Yeah, I, I've been fortunate. I always said that I'm fortunate to have worked for three great guys um, as mentors, all in their own way. Um, <clears throat> and I always think it's well, it's interesting because both, you know, Barry was on the was very, you know, was fairly young. Now he seems really young, but um, Paul and and Bob were older. You know, they were probably in their 60s when I worked, for, which was which is sort of an anomaly. So I think it's interesting to work for two guys that are were on the much older end um as mentors and i think that showed how passionate they were they still had the desire to learn you know they were at the show every year which i think that's the reason that they were in their 60s and still you know still really doing you know, at a high level doing a fantastic job um i learned a lot from both of them you know and i had enough experience at that point you know i had a lot of years already on a golf course by the time I got there. And by the time, so I was really able to, I was fortunate when Paul had taken over and, and I always say it was at the same place. So I was really able to compare and pick and choose. I was ready to move on at that point, but I was really able to learn a lot in that last year or so to see, okay, what did Paul do differently after seeing what Bob did on the same piece of property and kind of critique it and see what, and I think, so I've always 
you know, I always like tell my guys, look, you're going to manage your own way. You know, I'm not going to manage like Bob. I'm not going to manage like Paul. I have to manage like myself because your personality comes into play so much. Um, you know, your critical thinking, all those things. But, you know, if you're able to kind of assimilate and take some different ideas from both, you know, that are both bright guys, you know, I always said like, Paul was known as this great agronomist, right? I mean, I think people would say, oh, you know, they just think in terms of, okay, grass. I always thought he was such a brilliant manager. And I actually thought that was his, his biggest strength, his recruiting of people and the people he surrounded himself. That was something that I tried to kind of, um, you know, understand and acquire. Um, and then, and Bob was a brilliant, uh, he was actually brilliant, not actually, he was a brilliant agronomist. You know, he was very, from a very uh, basic, uh, sense he understood the foundation of of turf grass management really well and you know he didn't try to you know he didn't try to uh make things too complex he he understood the real the the building blocks if you will and he was really good at that you know his timing he'd worked in the same area he worked on poa um you know he he could do the he could do that job blindfolded in a lot of ways just because of his like i said his his massive level of experience both of them really smart all that stuff of course but just totally different styles and um they both made it work but those contrasting styles there was a lot to learn from both of them if you paid attention and 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 the differences it, there's a lot of great managers and a lot of great agronomists have come and gone in this industry and you but you have some of these people who, you know, you just mentioned that name and they're, they're sort of at a level of like legendary status. And you were fortunate enough to work for two of them, you know, without naming any other names, what is it that sets people like that apart from the rest of the pack? So um, they, they were both really hard workers. Number one, very dedicated. Um, that would be the main thing. They're both, that was, that was consistent. Actually, all three of the guys I work for, but hard workers can, uh, you know, consistently hard workers, dedicated, smart guys. Um, and they, mo they both knew how to motivate people, but in a very different way. So, and, you know, one had a more contemporary style of management. The other one had a more of an old school style of manager, but for their time, they were both very, very effective, you know, motivators. So I would say those things, you know, because you can't, you know, those everything sort of sounds like cliche, but I mean, you, you can't do this without a team, you know, neither, right. none of those guys did what they did by themselves. So they had, especially at the clubs that they were at, the big clubs, you know, and this, so they were good about surrounding the right people, good people around them. And as you now <clears throat> enter that stage of your career where you are the person who mentors others, what have you picked up from them that, you know, maybe people who would work for you, if we were to sit here and talk to them and ask them, what is it that you've learned from Jared? What are the things you've picked up from these guys that really help uh, um, form <clears throat> you as a, as a superintendent, as a personnel manager? Yeah, so I, I think, you know, number one, you need to be consistent you know you have to you have to make sure they they understand what expectations you have um uh, uh you know i think that's probably one of the main things um you know i think i'm a different manager than the two guys i'm a very like i was saying you know i'm very different you know, i'm much more much more open um 
you know, I'm not afraid to I'll show my weaknesses to the guys I work for. I, I, I'm much more open, I would say, as far as that goes. Um, but there's an interaction. I, I have, you know, very much, I think it's important for them to be able to come to me, ask a question. Me, and if I don't know it, tell them, look, I don't know it. Let's figure it out. So I, I try to be at least the, the guys that I work with now. I'm very much on the level with, I think, you know, the guys that I work for were on, it's, at least by the time I work for them, we're on such a pedestal. And I've never thought of myself or put myself anywhere near that level. So I've always had a very interaction. I always feel like I'm more one of the guys. And I think that the two guys that I work for, I never really saw that. And that's fine because they were at a point in their careers when I worked for them where they were, you know, they all, they both had how many majors under their belt and everything else. Right. Um, but I, I never, I don't, you know, I don't, I've never managed that way. So I'd say that's like a distinct difference, but at the same time, you know, tone the line as far as work, you know, I think you have to, to show that you're willing to do the work. Um, you know, I know I always say, you know, you don't ask somebody to do something that you wouldn't have done or wouldn't do or haven't done. And um, that kind of mentality, you know, be willing to do the work with them, put in the hours with them before you ask them to do it, have the same level or higher level of dedication. Right. Now, at the end of the day, you're, you're, you're also uh, involved in some charitable endeavors. Uh, tell us about the Walsh and Foundation. What does it do? How did you get involved in it? And where do you find the time to even get involved in anything else? So, um, well, a bunch of years ago, there was um, a relationship to my family uh, well, without going into a long story. And these folks were actually, these folks um, unfortunately lost both their daughters, their only children, or their only two children in, in, a tra in two tragic, separate tragic accidents. And so they sort of adopted, um, they were a wealthy couple in Yonkers, New York. Um, they were always generous people, but after the loss of their daughters, they became really strong in philanthropy um, in that area. And so, you know, we you know, knew them since we were really young. My parents were close to them. Uh, when, when ultimately, well, when, when, while they were still alive, they set up a trust for the time when they would pass and, um, you know, they were, like I said, they were, they were known for their philanthropy. And basically when they both passed on, they passed it along to uh, really myself, my brother and my wife is involved. Um, and to answer your question, she, her and my brother actually do a lot of the work. You know, I, I, um, I'm kind of in the background. I, you know, more of an approval, but, you know, and some ideas, but as far as the legwork and day to day, my brother and Christine really do the majority of the work. Um, so, but yeah, that's how we got involved that we've basically continued their, um, you know, their giving, uh, you know, hopefully in perpetuity, but, uh, you know, I think actually I, I just, my, our son now is going to be one of the trustees. So hopefully it continues, but yeah, it's, it's a small, you know, foundation. We've, we've done some different things. We were focused very much still on that area and have supported a lot. We, we put an emphasis on supporting a lot of the charities that they uh, supported when they were alive and, you know, to continue in, in their name. Um, <clears throat> and now, now we've kind of branched off a little bit, but still with the same focus on uh, children, essentially, um, they were big with, uh, f the local fire department, things like that. So we built training facilities, things like that. So your career started pretty much right at the height of the golf boom. Mm -hmm. And so for the past 
couple of decades plus, you've seen the golf industry really ride sort of this roller coaster of intense popularity. Uh, the I don't want to say crash, but the certainly a a, a low point uh, that coincided with a real estate crash. Uh, some renewed popularity in the last couple of years because of the pandemic and a lot of challenges since then with labor and supply issues and so forth. Throughout the duration of your career, what what would you say has been the greatest challenge you've faced in this business and how did you overcome it if you were able to at all? I mean, I, you know, in present time, I think, you know, finding good people that are willing to go into this seems to be the biggest challenge, truthfully. Um, you know, I think that's been the biggest decline in 20 years, in my opinion, you know, um, when I think about, you know, the guys that I brought on early on and, and the ability to attract good candidates, in theory, should go up with the reputation of the club and myself and whatnot, you know, as you know, known quantity, you know, and uh, it's continued to be a struggle. So, I mean, that's been, that's as of right now is the biggest struggle. Now we went through periods where we had labor a few years ago, certainly when the economy crashed, we've had all the budget constraints, but we've managed through all that stuff. The, the, the part of, of guys not going into this industry is, is, seems to be the more disturbing part, you know, and the biggest challenge right now. Um, and we're in it, but uh, yeah. And, and what are you doing to try to address that? Obviously, uh, when we talk to superintendents, everybody has the same concerns that you just voiced and everybody has different ways of dealing with it and trying something new to hope that whatever it is you're, you're, you're doing to attract help sticks so what, what are you doing there at Applebrook yeah so the biggest thing seems to be the challenge the quality of life you know we talked about my predecessors and you know kid guys don't work that way and I think of the guys that I walk worked alongside of that all went on to be successful superintendents um you know when I was in New York um yeah, it's just that, you know, we've slowly kind of ratcheted that back and tried to improve the quality of life, reduce the number of hours, have more time off. <clears throat> and so that's been, that's been kind of the focus, certainly pay, you know, you look at the pay of what, you know, a starting assistant or second assistant is getting compared to 10 years ago, or even five years ago. So I think all those things to make it more attractive. And then, the technology, you know, the industry is going to adapt. It's just slow at this point. But ultimately, I think you're going to see, you know, the, our industry become more in line. And it's not just our industry. I mean, the assistant pros, you know, it's the same thing. Those guys are far and few between. And it's for the same reasons, you know. Um, you know, the difference in pay between the head guy and the, and the, and the, the you know, the subordinate, the assistant, and the demanding hours. You know, guys want to go, especially in my area, they want to go to the beach, they want to go to the shore, they want to do do all these things. And social media, I think, has done, you know, well, not, not damage or whatever, but it's basically, I think, you know, it was different when I was doing my thing on Sunday afternoon, you know, in New York or whatever, I wasn't getting a text to my buddies that were at the beach or whatever it was, you know, I was in my own world, 100% focused. <laughs> now we have all these distractions and you can see, wow, there's a whole world out there other than cutting grass or hand watering or syringing. So, but I think, you know, technology, I hope that the, that the demand on the conditions doesn't change. Um, 
but I think technology is going to eventually catch up, you know, meaning that I think you're, but you're, yeah, you're going to see, you know, the requirement for less hours because I, it has to become attractive to people. So if it's not the pay, it's going to be both pay and quality of life, you know, because I still think it's a fantastic place to work. Well, Jared, thanks for spending time with us today. Really enjoyed uh, the opportunity to, to catch up with you. Thanks. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.